Welcome, friends, to the Overcomers Initiative. As always, I'm your host, Phil King, and I'm excited that you've decided to join us today for this first video episode. That's it. I'm live in Technicolor. I'm excited to be here on YouTube, finally. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and jump right into things. I do apologize for the the late episode. I did really want to get this done closer to the New Year's. Unfortunately, with the trying to get software and editing software and cameras and all that, all that good stuff, timing just didn't really happen. Uh, in lieu of an actual episode like we're doing now, I did post all of the podcast audio episodes to the channel. So if you haven't watched those or listened to them yet, they're here on YouTube for you to listen to them there as well as Spotify and Apple Podcast. I'm still going to keep the Spotify and Apple Podcast in addition to this YouTube channel, and I do hope to expand in the future. But for now, we're here on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. I'm also on Facebook where I will begin posting links to the YouTube channel. Follow me on Facebook. Feel free to comment, like, and subscribe, right? Because we're on YouTube now. I got to say that comment, like, subscribe. Uh, but do follow us on Facebook. I'm trying to get a community together of uh, like minded people who can share their struggles, exhort one another, just have a good time there on Facebook. So make sure you check that page out. That's where I'll also post all the updates as far as, you know, episode release dates and whatnot. That getting that taken care of. We're just going to dive right into things. Again, I really, I'm, I did really want to get this episode done closer to the new year. It would have made a little bit more sense, but I think we're still close enough to where it'll still work out. My, this, this episode, I want to I talk about our motivations, as in why are we in this journey to overcome? Why are we here? What's our motivation? for all of this. Uh, with reference to the new year, you know, you get a lot of talk around around that time about resolutions, uh, goals that people want to set for the year. They may want to read more books. They may want to get stronger, go to the gym, lose weight, eat better, learn to speak a language, learn to play an instrument. The list goes on and on. Specifically, um, with gym memberships, what's interesting is a lot of people will they'll sign up to go to a gym and they're there relatively faithfully and then come March, April, May, they're all gone. Maybe 5 to 10% actually stick with it. And the question I want to ask is why? Why do so many drop out? Why do so many quit? Well, I would submit that they do that because their motivations didn't really align with their goals. Keeping on with the gym membership shtick. They wanted to lose weight. They wanted to get stronger. But their motivation to do so didn't meet the requirements of being able to put up with the pain and the suffering it takes to get to their goal. So you have your goal here. Your motivation is what's pushing you up to your goal. And there's a lot of pain and suffering in between. 
And if your motivation, if you don't have a strong enough motivation to push you up through all that pain and suffering to get to your goal, well, then you're just going to peter out and you're not going to reach it. So I want to talk to about talk to you guys about our motivations and why do we do what we do. And if you hear paper, paper rustling, I have notes because I'm old school and I've never talked in front of a camera before. So I need my notes. So why, why strive to quit porn? There's a few different motivations that are fairly common out there. There's, you feel guilty, you're shameful. Uh, it's, you, you, under, you begin to understand it's harmful to your relationships. There's ties to human and sex trafficking there. In fact, a, a friend of mine was just a, a few days ago was saying something about uh, there was a specific site, illicit adult website that had a channel taken down because they were basically trafficking these poor girls and it came out and they just they got shut down and my friend who told me this knew a guy that that he watched that channel fairly regularly and it kind of put a weird taste in his mouth saying well shoot man I don't like that's not cool so there's that you know it, it's all kind of when you when you I'll, I'll have to do an episode on it but there's really more ties to that filth and under underbelly scum than a lot of people realize. And I think if a lot of it came out, we wouldn't have near the problem with porn that we do to, or at least it wouldn't be as prevalent as it is. But we'll get off that soapbox for now. And, but so it, it gives you feelings of guilt or shame. Porn hurts your relationships. There's ties to all the trafficking yuck that goes on. But for the believer, you also understand it grieves the Holy Spirit. And we're commanded to grieve not the Holy Spirit. These are all good motivators. But again, for the believer, there should be one motivator, one motivating factor that rises above all else. And it should, it should make us strive not just to quit porn. Porn is just one of the facets. It should make us strive to all good works. And just living in a more godly and pious way anyway. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says that the love of Christ constraineth us. It goes on to say, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. So if one man died for everybody, everybody must have been dead. If he, if he died to bring everybody alive, then everybody must have been dead. And now we that live should not live for ourselves anymore, but we should live for the one that died for us to pay our redemption. That word constrain is interesting. It means to compel or to force. Back in the days of uh, great big wooden warships in the 17th, 18th century, the British Navy had this nasty habit of uh, press ganging. And what that was, was a uh, British warship would come into port and a, a gang of sailors would go into the port town and they would find a dude either walking by himself, stumbling out of a bar drunk, or walking with his wives and kids. They didn't care. They would just grab any able-bodied man that they needed 
and they'd haul him back. They'd basically kidnap him and force him to work for the Royal Navy. And by the time you leave port and you're stuck on this ship, you may as well because they'll feed you. And what else are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to run away? Where are you going to go? You're 100 miles from shore. So that's, that's, that's a good example of constraining. You don't really have a choice. It forces you. There should be an inward drive, something pushing you so strongly that you can't do anything else. And that love of Christ, or is that, yeah, that love of Christ, Paul is saying here, constrains us. Now, I have to be clear. It's not our love for Christ that constrains us, that forces us to do all these things. It is Christ's love for us. And if we are going to be in any way, shape, or form constrained or pushed to do anything for Christ, it has to be because we have a proper understanding of Christ's love for us. Because it's not our love for Christ that does anything. The Bible says the love of many will wax cold. The love of man waxes, it, it, it's not there. But Christ's love for us is something really special indeed. And that's what I really want to focus on, is to try to just try to help us to understand how deep and how vast Christ's love is for us. So we're going to be getting into a, a few different Bible verses, so I'm going to go ahead and get my Bible handy. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that word commendeth just means demonstrates. God demonstrated. God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's kind of a lot to unpack there. Because what you have to understand is us being sinners, we're the enemies of God. We're His enemy as sinners. In fact, Romans 5, verse 10, says, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So, we're His enemies when we're in our sin. If we're unregenerate, we're God's enemies. And yet, God... Christ died for us, his enemies. That's, that's, that's heavy stuff. <clears throat> so I just, I just read Romans chapter 5, verse 8. If you'll go up to verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. So it's very rare that somebody would die for a righteous man. Yet peradventure... Just going to put this out there. For a good man, some would even dare to die. So it's rare, but it happens. That, you know, for a, for a good man, for a really good man, somebody might die for this good man. But to die for your enemies? That doesn't make any sense. God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mankind is sinful. We're full of sin. It's in our nature. It's antithetical to everything that God is. And we'll, we'll, we'll pause there for a little bit in a little bit. By nature, we're the enemies of God. And God died for his enemies. 
So God demonstrated his love by dying for us, his enemies. Christ also demonstrated his love by bearing our curse. In, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, there's this strange thing that the, the children of Israel do. You have some of them, and they go up onto this one hill over here, this one mountain, and they proclaim all the blessings and the promises of God for those that keep the covenant. Because Deuteronomy is basically, the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land, and Moses is rehashing the law that he's already given them. He's, he's saying, you guys are a new generation because the old generation died in the wilderness because they didn't want to go into the promised land. They didn't trust God. So they all died off. Now there's a new generation. And Moses is re-giving them the law in Deuteronomy. And he says, if you keep the law, you'll be blessed. So if you do this, you do this, you do this. There's all these blessings here. And so this one part of the children of Israel, they go onto this mountain and they proclaim all those blessings. But then there's a, another side to that. And Moses tells them, if you don't keep the law, if you break the covenant, you'll have this curse and this curse and this curse and this curse. And so this other part of the children of Israel go up to this mountain and they're proclaiming all the curses. So there's a curse that comes with sin. Because we are sinful, we're by nature covenant breakers, and therefore under a curse. And that's backed up in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, where the Bible says, for as, many are as, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So he's basically saying, if you don't keep every jot, every tittle, of the law, you're cursed. Now, for the most part, us Gentiles, I mean, I'm, I'm not a Jew. For the most part, us Gentiles, we're most familiar with the Ten Commandments. So that's definitely the law of God. So the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Every one of us has broken that in one way, shape, or form. When you choose to do what you want to do rather than what God tells you to do, you've made an idol of your own self and of your own selfish desires. You've put yourself above God and therefore making yourself a God to your own self. You've made an idol. You've put, you've, you have another God before God. Don't lie. Don't lust. Don't or don't commit adultery. And then Jesus takes all these all these commandments and he says, You've heard of of whore time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus begins to take the law, but he goes deeper. Because the law was all do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And he takes it and he, he pushes further and he says it's not about what you do what you do is important but I see your heart and if you're not doing it for the right reasons your heart's not in it therefore it's no good so we've all broken the law therefore we're all under the curse but if you'll go just a couple verses down you'll see that Christ bore our curse. 
Verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's bought us back from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So he was made the curse on our behalf. We were cursed, and he was made that same curse for us so that we could be bought back from that curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So what is this curse we're talking about? You're cursed if you're breaking the law. You're, you're cursed if you hang on a tree. You're, you're cursed. You're cursed. You're, what, what, what is this curse? I was listening to this sermon by Paul Washer, and he put it this way. If the Beatitudes are the blessings for those that follow Christ, if, if these are the blessings, well, the cursings must be the opposite of those. And it basically boils down to this. The cursed are separated from God. Cursed are cut off from the kingdom of God. The cursed have no mercy shown to them. The cursed have no access to the light of God's countenance. There's, there's the blessed, and they get, to, they get the kingdom of God. They get to see God. They'll inherit the earth. They'll obtain mercy. The cursed, none of that. Christ was made the curse. He bore all that on our behalf. And he demonstrated, so he, he, Christ demonstrated his love by dying for his enemies. Christ demonstrated his love by bearing our curse. And Christ demonstrated his love by drinking God's wrath. This is, this is the point of the episode where we're going to get into some heavy stuff. Like, all of this has really been heavy. I probably haven't done a very good job of explaining it. But this is really where we get, it makes you think. So what we have to understand, and this is not really talked about at all to our shame, us Christians. Because, I've, and I've already explained that we're all sinners, right? But it's not enough to just know that you're a sinner. We all know that God hates sin, right? I said that I would, I would I'd pause after I said that sin is antithetical to everything that God is. Now we're going to pause right there. It makes sense that God hates sin. What is sin? Well, to understand what sin is, we have to understand who God is. God is righteous. There is no sin. There's no iniquity in him. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's just. He is loving he is good. And it's not, when I say all these things, it's not like I'm describing a person. When I describe a person as good, what I'm saying is he does good things. When I'm describing a man as just, I'm saying he judges between two things every now and then and he makes good decisions or he makes the right choice. When I say that God is good, 
It is not that God does good things, although he does. No, the very essence of good that we get is from God. God is good. Good is God. God is good. There is, there is no definition of good that good does not exist outside of God. All of God is good. At the same time, all of God is just. We don't have any sense of justice without God. God is just. Justice is God. Love. God is love. God does not love. He is love. Love is God. It's all summed up. And at the same time, he is all he is all love, he's all just, he's all good. He's all wrath. He's all no he's all of these things all at the same time. And you take all of these things together, his love, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his wrath, his righteousness, you take all of it together. He is all of these things all at the same time. You put all that together and you get what we just call holiness. Because there, there's no other word to describe it. He is so other. He's so higher. He's so transcendent. The human mind just doesn't comprehend it. Which is okay. Because if you can understand your God, if you can wrap your mind around God, he must not be a very good God. Because you can understand him. And if you can understand your God, what makes your God any more different than a man? Fair question. So you take all of these things and it's holy. But in the Bible, there's a story of Isaiah. He's 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 doing something in the in the in the temple. And he's struck with a vision. And he goes to the throne room of God and he sees God in all of his glory. And the angels around him are crying, Holy, holy, holy. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, whenever something's repeated three times, it takes it to the superlative. So what they're saying is holy, holier, holiest is the Lord. And immediately he's struck with this fear because he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I've, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He acknowledges I'm utterly sinful and vile. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I guess this is it for poor old me. All right, and that, that's what he deserved. As Christians, we need to spend more time teaching about, learning about the, the holiness of God. Because the more you understand the holiness of God, the more you understand exactly how pitiful your situation really is. Because everything... That God is, you are the complete opposite. So while God is good, man is evil. While God is just, man is unjust. While God is righteousness, man is unrighteous. And sin is antithetical. It's the opposite to everything that God is. And so understandably, God hates sin. What would you do if you were if you were confronted with something that was absolutely opposite to everything that you're about? Of course you're not going to like it. Some may even say you hate it. So God hates sin, but even more so, I want you to see, and this is, this is a thing that's not talked about and needs to be talked about. 
God does not only, I guess I didn't mark it. God does not only hate sin, but he hates the sinner in his sin. And that's a scary thought. Because we, we say, well, God God hates, hates the sin but loves the sinner. Mm, yes, but no. For example, Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Verse 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. That's us. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. So God hates the sinner while he's in his sin. Hates it. Because he hates sin. One more thing that should be very troubling to us all. The sinner is storing up wrath against himself every moment that he's unrepentant. That's backed up in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse number 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up to unto themselves, unto thyself, wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render it to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil unto the Jew first, and also of the, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. So what is the Bible saying there? Every moment that you're unrepentant, every moment that you remain in your sin, you're just storing yourself up wrath. You're just shoveling it, shoveling it. And one day, you're going to have to drink from that cup of wrath. If, if you're going to pay for your own sin. But wait a minute. So if all that's true, God hates sin, understandably. Okay, we get that. But God hates the sinner? But isn't God love? Well, yes. Now I want you to under... Now here is where the rubber meets the road here. God hates sin. He's angry with sin. God hates the sinner. He's intensely angry with the sinner. And one day, if that unrepentant sinner dies, God will pour out upon them the wrath that they shoveled up for themselves their whole unpenitent life. But God commendeth his love. He demonstrates his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ said, I will be made the curse for these sinners whom I hate 
but I love them. So I will die for them so that my righteousness can be imputed to them and we can now have fellowship. Wrap your head around that one. Just try. Just try. Wrap your head around it. I, I want to say it was... I know it was Paul Washer that said it, but he was quoting somebody else. He said, basically, the thing goes, there's, there's a phrase that should never be said without a trembling lip, and that is, I am blessed. Because every time you say you're blessed, you should follow it with because he was cursed. This is demonstrated, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The whole of the gospel is summed up in that verse. God made, treated Jesus as sin poured out his wrath upon Jesus so that we who justly deserved the wrath poured out onto us could be made the righteousness of God it's as if God has his his ledgers open right and he goes to Jesus's account and he credits our sin and our iniquity, and he credits that to Jesus' account, debiting it, taking it from our account, putting it on Jesus' account, taking Jesus' righteousness and credits that to our account. And so everything's flipped. For that moment, Christ became and was made and treated. He was declared guilty and punished as if he were guilty. So that now we could be declared righteous and treated as righteous. Christ was made to be sin for us, took upon himself the full wrath of God and the curse of sin to redeem us his enemies. What does this mean? What am I getting at? I understand I've probably done a terrible time, terrible job describing this. But I, I need you to understand the severity of your stance before God. That you are worthy of nothing more than the whole cup of God's wrath just being emptied on you. You deserve nothing but torment for all eternity because you're evil. Sorry. I'm evil. My dad's evil. My mom's evil. Every everybody is. And God hates evil and we're evil. So God hates us, but God loves us. And he demonstrates that love by, by dying for us 
who by ourselves sneer and mock and ridicule, turn our noses, There is no greater love. You can't, un you, again, try wrapping your mind around that love to where you would go and you would suffer unimaginable. And it, it's, it's not that Jesus, we're all, we're all familiar with Jesus suffering on the cross, right? And it's for some reason, we, we, some, somehow we think that Jesus getting pushed around, beaten, and, and nailed to a cross that's what paid for our sins. No, it was that terrible and agonizing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the Bible says that his visage, his his face, his his body was so marred and scarred and just beat up, you couldn't recognize him as a man. Now, whether whether or not that's just indicating that you just couldn't recognize who it was. Like, that's a person, okay, but who is it? I can't tell. They're so beat up. Or, oh my goodness, what is that thing walking down the road? Oh, that's a person? What? Either way, that's not... That's painful. That's agony and torture. So not to discount the, the, the torment that Christ went through through the crucifixion, but it's not the crucifixion that saves that 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 really topped it. God poured His wrath. That's that's what in in the garden Christ is saying. Christ is sweating great drops of blood. He didn't pray that God, if it's Your will, can I can I can I be hung with a rope? Can I can I avoid crucifixion? Can I go to an electric chair for this? No. He said, let this cup pass from me. So that begs the question, what was in the cup? What was the wrath of God? That's the real torment. And Christ endured all of that for the ones who hate him. Because in our evil state, we, we, we hate anything that's good, anything that's pure, anything that's righteous. We hate it. But God loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're a Christian and you're watching this and you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, you need to understand the depth of love that that is. So what does this mean? When confronted with the magnitude of the sacrifice made on our behalf, the correct response, the only response, is to live in a manner pleasing to the one who bought our ransom. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I'll look it up, otherwise I'll mess it up. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to the, this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he says, I beseech you, therefore. What does therefore mean? Well, it means based upon everything that I've just said, now... 
understanding all of that, we do this. So I, I beseech you, I beg you, therefore. What is the therefore there? Well, he just spent, Paul, just spent 11 chapters explaining how we were under the law, that we were condemned under the law, that Christ made an end to the law by fulfilling the law, and that we're now justified by faith. And all of that was made possible because Christ was crucified and took our punishment for us. So, because Christ has done all this stuff so that we could be justified by faith, I, present, I beg you, please, by the mercies of God, he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He doesn't say present your spirit, present your heart, present your bodies. Make it physical. Actually do the stuff. Right? Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So if you're, if you're in your heart following Christ, your body will go along with it, right? So what, there is nothing else for the, for the Christian to do. What, is this, what does any of this have to do with porn? This. If... If you will just t just take some time, study it out for yourself, please. If you'll take time and just and just read this book, learn about what Christ did for you. R learn about where you, what your status was before God. It really kind of still is while you're in this flesh, and if you're unrepentant, what it is. Understand how God sees you in your sin. How God sees you now. We've been made sons, equal heirs with God. Explain that one to me. It would have been perfectly okay and understandable if, if, if Jesus had died and suffered God's wrath to save me and then I get to just to dumb it down, I get to go hang out with Jesus and with my Creator, who created me for this relationship. Man screwed it all up, so now we're here. So God loves us. He suffers God wrath, God's wrath. He dies. I'm saved now. So now we get to hang out in heaven for all eternity, and that's it. That's more than I deserve. More than I deserve is just. Blacking out, going into an eternal nothing. Hey, at least that's not eternal torment. Because that's what I deserve. But it goes further than that. God's made us equal heirs with Christ. And Christ is the one who did everything. What did I do? I didn't do anything. So when you're confronted with this love, when you understand this love, Let me put it this way. Somebody buys you lunch. What do you say? I'll get you next time, bro. Or sis, depending on who's watching. Right? You pay it back. Christ gave us everything. More than everything. 
And are we just going to not acknowledge that? Are we just going to do what we want? As if we're going to look at God Almighty and say, thanks, bro, and just keep doing our own thing? Is that really what we're going to do? Brothers. No. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. They shouldn't, that those who have been saved, those who now live, we shouldn't live for us to do what we want to do. We shouldn't live in a manner that pleases us, but unto or for him which died for them and rose again. So how does this help us with porn? When we begin to understand the level of God's love for us and exactly what happened at Calvary and exactly how bad off we are and or were in our sins and the transaction that took place and now our status before God versus what it was. It should not be difficult to strive. In fact, it, it, it not even it, it shouldn't just not be difficult. It should be nigh impossible for us to do anything against what Christ would have us to do. Now I understand we're still in a sinful body. We're in this flesh. The, I mean, goodness, we, we look for that blessed hope. What's entailed in the blessed hope? Well, one day I'm going to be able to live and not have to put up with the presence of sin. I'm just not going to have to deal with it. I'm not going to have to wake up and worry about what I'm going to do to grieve the Holy Ghost. I'm not going to go to sleep regretting that I messed up that day. And guys, listen, I still mess up. I'm still tempted. I still fall. I, I, like, I'm still sinful. We all are. But what keeps me wanting to do every, even, forget porn. Even if it's just I get impatient with the grandma in front of me trying to drive to work. Right, and I'm just like, goodness, would you would you please at least go the limit? And I'm just getting impatient. After a while, I start thinking, you know, that's not very Christ-like, and Christ died, like suffered so greatly for me. Now multiply that by a hundred. If I do fall to temptation. But there is nothing else for us to do. We must strive. If this book is true, if what we say we believe is true, and if God is God, there is nothing else for us to do than to serve Him and to please Him. 
So by understanding God's love, understanding the, the debt that we owe God, we're never going to be able to pay it. But that shouldn't stop us from trying. So every moment of every day, striving to please the one who gave everything for us. Just trying to give him us. Because he gave himself for us, so we should every day strive to give ourselves to him. In so much as we can. So, porn, alcohol, drugs, gambling, greed, selfishness, the whole, all of it. If we, if we understand the love of God the love of Christ that constrains us, it shouldn't... That should be the motivation for us that never, ever fails. The thing that when we do fall and we do fail and we mess up, the thing that picks us up and forces us to keep going is understanding the love that Christ had for us. Now, this is all well and good for believers. It's all very motivational. What if you don't believe? The one thing that I would want you to take away from this is that you're in a very dangerous position, for one. Romans, like, like I, I mentioned, I referenced earlier, Romans, you're, you're just heaping yourself wrath against the day of judgment. It would be as if and I've, I've used this example before. If, if I took, if I had a young child and I just came across this homeless bum and then I invited him into my home and I gave him a bed to sleep on, I gave him food to eat, I gave him a roof over his head, gave him clothes, I got him a job, like everything that this man has in his life now, I've given to him. And he gets sick and he's in the hospital and somehow the doctors find out that he needs some sort of protein in his blood or whatever and that my kid has this protein in their blood but they need to take all like they need to take so much blood from my kid to save this dude that my kid's going to die but my 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 son loves this dude so much that he's okay with it and this the operation goes through now my son's dead and this homeless man is alive because my son gave his life for this homeless bum who everything that he has is from me. And then that bum thumbs his, thumbs his nose at me, curses me out, trashes his room, is just so ungrateful. I mean, you ask the average, you put that situation to the average Joe on the street, what are they going to, you ask them, what would you do? You'd probably get like, I'd shoot him or something. And justifi justifiably so, you'd be angry. I need you to understand that is exactly what you're doing every day that you do not repent. God gave everything to save you in every day that you do not repent. God is angrier and angrier and angrier, and he's just holding it all back. There was one illustration. It's, it's, he, he hates sin. He hates the sinner, but he loves the sinner at the same time. So it's, it's, you're just storing yourself wrath, and so it's as if he's holding back 
the tidal wave of wrath that's coming your way. And he's beckoning to you at the same time, pleading, please come, please come, please come. But one day, both hands are going to drop and you're not going to, he's not going to plead for you anymore. And that tidal wave of wrath that you've stored up for yourself because you haven't repented is going to come crashing down on you and there will be nobody and nothing to save you. And that's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. But, if you do believe, there is peace, there is joy, God did all that. God gave himself so that he could have a relationship with you. That's what he wants. He wants your fellowship. He wants a relationship with you. That's that's why we exist. Adam screwed up, messed everything up. So now he had to jump through all of these hoops to save us. And now we're here. What? I guess the one thing I, I, I hope that anybody watching that is not a believer, the one thing that I hope that they would take away is that God loves you too much for you to understand that love and thumb your nose at it. So, with this in mind, brothers, overcomers, as we're on our journey of overcoming, and believe me, just it's, it's, it's a lifetime journey. It has its ups and downs. We will all fall. We will all fail. The proverb says a righteous man falls seven times and just keeps getting back up. What keeps us getting up should be our love for Christ. Not because our love for Christ is anything, but because his love for us is everything. And understanding his love for us should motivate us to love him more and more each day. So until next time, brothers, keep up the good fight.